The gospel lesson, lesson comes from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to him Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We heard in 2 Peter that we have a more sure word of the testimony. The, The word that you have written down for us is as sure and as true and as faithful as the word spoken on the mountain from the cloud. Lord, help us. Help us to see what you have for your people this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So last year, my wife Sarah and I, we bought a piece of property over in Sequatchie County. Our kids are getting older. Our oldest daughter, Maddie, is um, in college now. Our son is right behind her. And, you know, over the next few years, one by one, we will pull those arrows out of the quiver and shoot them off into this world of pain and sorrow and through the gospel of Jesus Christ, hope. And um, so we started having some pretty candid conversations, uh, Sarah and I did. What does the future look like? If the Lord gives us, you know, 30 more years, what would we do with them? Where would we spend them? What jobs would we do or stop doing? And um, so one of these things was, I think we probably sell this house and move into something different. And uh, so as we were looking for, for property, we found um, this piece of property. <laughs> and it's, it's not a huge tract of land. It's a bit of a farm. And... Um, it's not significant for its size, but it's pretty significant for its potential. And so as I was driving over uh, from time to time over the last few months, I would pull in and unlock the, the rusting uh, galvanized chain link gate and swing that open and, and just sort of dream about what we might do. Um, neighbors started coming out of places you know, uh, behind trees that may be from the property. I, I mean, there was one guy, I have no idea where he came from. Um, 
they started waving me over to their driveways or they showed up in mine or they, or they stopped their cars on the side of the road and yelled to me. And they all asked the same question. What are your plans for this place? Now, the first time I, I heard it, I thought, a little nosy, but okay. I mean, you know, he's a neighbor. He, he, he should know. The second time it happened, I thought, this is interesting. The third time it happened, I started paying attention. What are your plans for this place? You see, our neighbors know something. Our future neighbors understand that our plans are going to affect their lives. Our name is on the deed for this property. Our will can be done there. And we're in Sequatchie County. <laughs> the, there, are, there are very few regulations, if you know what I mean. No building codes, no commercial zonings. You see, Sarah and I have a bit of unrestricted authority to make our will be done in this place. And the place has a history, it does. There, remain, there are the remains there of an orchard of some sort. But, but the little fruit trees that remain and struggle, they're, they're overshadowed by the oaks and the maples and the pines that have shot up beyond them. There are six or eight grapevines spread out across um, the cleared part of this land, but, but they're overrun. They're overrun with vines and thistles and things that are more powerful, things that don't need to be cultivated have, over, have overtaken they're all but choking out the fruit that once grew there. Now, Sarah and I, we have a plan to redeem this land. We, we plan to replant it and reseed it and cultivate and prune and grow. In a sense, we're gonna, we plan to remake this place. And if the Lord gives us long life and the seasons are right and the pests are few... We hope that the future glory of this place is greater than its former glory. But our neighbors don't know that. They don't know it yet. We could just as easily throw up a 17-acre hubcap resale yard. If you're in the resale hubcap business, I apologize. I don't mean to insult, but... we. Our neighbors understand that our plan, whatever it is, will affect their lives and their property values. Do you know that God has a plan for this place? And it will affect your life. Peter was beginning to see God has a plan and it's going to affect his life. Now for a number of years, I have heard pastors and, and professors and commentators and TV preachers, if they're good, say, context, context, context. You don't understand your text without its context. I have never found that to be more true than with the transfiguration. I have stared and stared and stared at this passage this week. I wish I had looked back and forward a little earlier. So let's do that. I mean, it's a strange passage of scripture, right? To be honest. 
And if you're like me, you're thinking, what just happened? So let's, let's wind the tape back. Let's move the progress bar back to the beginning of this scene and ask these questions. Why does this happen on this mountain at this time to these disciples? Why are Moses and Elijah there? Why does, a voice, why does the voice of the heavenly father bother to repeat himself with the very words he spoke at Jesus' baptism? Why does Jesus' face shine like lightning? Let's ask these questions. So let's go back. Mark 8, 27. Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist and other people think maybe you're Elijah or, or one of the other prophets. You're somebody. I mean, they know you're somebody. And then Jesus turns the question on them. He says, who do you say that I am? And what does, Je what does Peter respond? You are the Christ. I mean, he gets it right, sort of. I mean, this is a big deal. Peter has rightly identified Jesus as the promised one to come, which is why the next scene, scene seems so strange to us. It seems strange to me. Jesus tells them, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ. And he began to teach them, verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days, rise again. And then Mark adds this little sentence, and he said this plainly. Who pauses on that sentence when they read this passage? Anyone? Anyone that smart? Well, I overlooked it. I threw it away. Okay, he said it plainly. No, Jesus told them plainly, okay, I am going to be rejected. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise from the dead. I think this little verse may be the key to understanding the transfiguration. Now, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And how does he respond to the message of the cross when Jesus tells him? He rebukes Jesus. I mean, he got it right, and now he's getting it wrong. Already. The good thing about Peter and us, he doesn't waste much time. The, the scripture says Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Now, do you think that looked more like? Are you sure this is the only way this thing can go down? I mean, I, you, know, you are Jesus. You're the Christ. I've just said so. Are you sure? I don't think it was a head nod and a mousy question. I think Peter grabbed Jesus by the arm, pulled him aside, made a scene, and said, stop it. Stop it with all this death talk. You're the Christ. You win. You restore the kingdom. Victory, not defeat. Not defeat. And does Jesus listen to reason? No. He says, get behind me, Satan. 
harsh, but rightly so. Peter has now aligned himself with the will of the enemy. Have you ever noticed that? Peter is offering the same thing to Jesus that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness temptation. The world without the cross. Glory without sacrifice. Peter has just suggested the same plan. Stop it with all this death talk. Jesus says, get behind me. I've already passed through those waters and I'm not going back to them. Jesus' mission has moved forward. Jesus is still with Satan in the wilderness. Peter is still with him in the wilderness. Then he says, and I imagine that he says this, Jesus says this to Peter lovingly and pastorally. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And what follows this tender, I think, comment is like a drink from the discipleship fire hose. In four short verses, Jesus is going to throw up on the crowd enough gospel truth to precipitate thousands of sermons and tens of thousands of pages of commentary with four short sentences. Listen to them. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and shameful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is a crisis for us today. In this moment, this is a crisis. Do you feel the weight of these words? I once had a friend tell me that he considered himself about 40% Christian. He was dead serious. He said, I like a lot of things about Jesus, but not everything. Or as Nathan confessed this morning, I like Jesus, I even love him as long as he doesn't disrupt my life. My friend liked 40%. I think these four sentences were the other 60. Listen, it's just my cross to bear was not a quaint Hebrew saying. The image here is not dealing with some recurring, unfortunate, as Paul Miller says, low-level suffering like wilted lettuce or high gas prices. It's, there goes Jesus, dragging his bloody, beaten, broken self up the hill to give his life for me. 
and for the will of his father, the good of his people, and saying, hand me one of those, because where he goes, I go. That's bearing a cross. Sounds appealing, right? Not yet. (laughs) But it will. Strangely enough, it will sound appealing. But it's a crisis of faith. Will what follows the cross be worth the sacrifice? How does losing my life save my life? Gaining the whole world sounds pretty good. I'd like to keep my soul with it. Please? Thankfully, Jesus does not leave us wondering if it will be worth it. See, that's the background of the transfiguration. And after this unnerving call to 100% sold out, burn the ships, hand me the cross, commitment to Jesus and his plan, Jesus gives us what Sinclair Ferguson calls a glimpse into the other side of discipleship. Look at Mark 9, 1 again. And he said to them, the people that he said these four things to, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Death and power. Sacrifice and reward. Defeat and victory. Where is Jesus going with this? And so he takes the three, his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, he takes them up the mountain, and he was transfigured before them. Are you ready to use your imagination for a minute? You will, we're going to leave you behind if you can't do it. So muster some imagination. Listen carefully to Mark's description in verse 3. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No, no. As no one on earth could bleach them. And Matthew adds, his face shone like the sun. Have you ever tried to stare at the sun? Kids, do not do this. I want, don't, no, don't do it. Do not stare at the sun. Jesus transformed before their very eyes from the drably dressed carpenter's son to the radiant, light-emitting, lightning-faced son of God. Now imagine Peter, James, and John at this point diving behind a small boulder. Hopefully there was one. To, To in some way hide their face from the light peering cautiously over the rim to try to get a glimpse of the radiant sun. And then the experience gets even more surprising, by the way. Suddenly there are two men standing with Jesus face to face, okay, face to face with the sun talking to him. It's Moses and Elijah. I have no idea how they knew. Was he wearing a t-shirt that said, Charlton is my homeboy? I have no idea. (laughs) 
But it's Moses and Elijah. And all the gospel accounts confirm this. Maybe Jesus, hold on, maybe Jesus greeted them by name. Man, don't you want that? Do you want the radiant son of God to say your name to your face? I do. I want, I'm going to hear that one day. Wow. Did he hug them? Now, I don't know if they were physical bodies or spirit versions. or I, I mean, my theology says they were not redeemed bodies, but I don't know what was standing there. But it was Moses and Elijah. Did they laugh together? As the three hide behind the boulder, maybe? One thing we know, they were talking with Jesus, and Luke tells us what they were talking about, his departure. His exodus. His crucifixion. The radiant son of God was shining like the sun, discussing how he would die with two of the men who had proclaimed it. The disciples do not know what to say. But Peter speaks up anyway, of course, and he says, Rabbi, it, it's good that we're here. Listen, we're going to make three tents. I'll make one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. We'll stay right here. This is really good. And then the voice comes. You see, Peter's not getting it. And don't mock him or look down on him because neither do we. He's putting Moses and Jesus and Elijah on the same plane somehow because the light is shining from Jesus' own face. His clothes are bleached white. But he wants three equal tents. Then a cloud overshadows them and a voice, the voice of the Father, it speaks directly to the three disciples. Did you notice that? See, I've read this and I always sort of thought the voice spoke to the creation. What the voice says is directed to the disciples. This before you is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Our Old Testament lesson was from Deuteronomy 18. I will bring for you one from your own people, a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. And a moment later, the light's gone. The voice has been carried away. There's just stillness and Jesus and the three. This was a jarring experience. Scripture says the disciples were terrified. I imagine they felt like they felt when the raging sea stopped like that. And they asked, who is this? I think they're still asking that question. For a moment, the kingdom of God had come with power and some who were standing there had witnessed it. And on the way down the mountain, it's clear that they're struggling to process it all.
Look at verse 9. Chapter 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead from the dead might mean. It's as if Jesus is saying, you remember Malachi, you forget Isaiah. And they asked him, why did the scribes say first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things. And then he says, and how is it written uh, of the Son of Man? That he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. You remember what I told you in the valley? That I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to rise from the dead? That's still true, you understand. They're just really struggling. They're really struggling. Malachi 4, 1 through 5. See, this is the part the disciples get. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded to him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Moses and Elijah have been revealed to these three guys. Just like Malachi said they would. And now the day of the Lord is here. We've seen the glory of the sun. His face shone like the rising sun. Why is this cross still necessary? Once again, the disciples' plan is out of line with God's plan. They remembered Malachi. They forgot Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Do you remember it? Listen. 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken smitten my God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. See, they didn't want that part. They didn't want it for Jesus and they didn't want it for themselves. They could not square these two pictures of Jesus. They saw a suffering and death as mutually exclusive from victory in life. There are two sides to discipleship. There is sacrifice and there is glory. And one leads to the other. It's the plan of God. Peter's agenda was out of line with God's agenda. 
there is still a deadly spiritual blindness hovering over the hearts of these men. And after the transfiguration, I really do think they begin to see Jesus. I think they begin to resist him. One commentator put it this way, the Jews believed in the resurrection from the dead. They believed it. But even after Jesus had told them several times, and he will tell them several more times, they keep saying, what could he mean by this rising from the dead? They, they understood the concept. It wasn't the resurrection they were struggling with. It was the death that necessitated it. They could not see the suffering servant and the glorified conquering Christ as the same person. They were resisting the plan of God. Wouldn't we? Don't we? Let me ask you this. Do you know that you have an agenda? Every human being has an agenda. Even an infant has an agenda. It goes something like this. Get milk, laugh at enormous faces, prevent slumber, make enormous messes. Right, Caroline? See? Even an infant has an agenda. And they're pretty good at manipulating their surroundings to further it. Have you noticed that? Aren't we? But for an infant, the agenda is somewhat innocent. It's more of an innate drive than it is a thought-out set of plans to accomplish or problems to solve or things to worry about or futures to ensure. In this moment, we have a decision to make. It's a crisis of faith for us. Do we believe that on the other side of following Jesus in his death, we will reign with him in glory? I don't know if Peter believed it yet. Until he saw the risen Christ. If you're taking notes, just write 2 Peter 1.16 in your notes and then go read it. And when the Holy Spirit descended upon the church at Pentecost, this same Peter, after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit had come, he stood up and he boldly proclaimed these words. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen up. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now listen to verse 36. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is not confused anymore. He sees a crucified Jesus ruling and reigning by the definite plan of God. It was the will of God to crush him. It was the definite will of God to raise him from the dead. It is the will of God that he will return in the manner of Malachi's prophecy. Listen, let me put it this way. There is no event in the history of the universe or the future of humanity more certain to occur than the second coming of Jesus Christ. No event more certain to occur than the second coming of Jesus Christ. What Peter, James, and John saw in that mountain was a foretaste of the glory and the power to be revealed when Jesus returns to this earth. This earth, Jesus is returning to this earth, it is certain, to bring healing to those who love him and destruction to those who resist him. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, said the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, gospel alert, people, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings and you shall go out leaping like a calf from the stall. Do you have any idea what that means? Have you ever seen a calf leaping from the stall? Nathan sent me a YouTube video this week of it. It is exciting. Unrestrained joy is what you will see. The, the leaping and the kicking, by the way, it has no purpose. It doesn't actually propel them forward. They, they make no progress. It's just joy. You know, Sarah and I, we have our land. And we, we plan to cultivate it. We plan to plant and grow and redeem and as I said before, we hope the future glory of our land, our little peace, is greater than its former glory. But even if we have the long years and the good weather and the very few pests, our dominion stops at the fence row. We can go so far and no farther. Our neighbors can rest in that. Hubcap world has a boundary. If a seed from one of our trees blows across the road and, and by the miracle of death and rebirth, by the way, it begins to sprout a new life, they have every right to pluck it up. Just. 
There are no limits on the dominion of God. When Jesus Christ returns in power and glory, all rights of property and soul will be forfeited. His glory will fill every corner of the universe. And the same light that proceeds from his face will bring healing to his people and destruction to his enemies, the same light. And his redemption will be complete and swift. Every weed burned, every orchard full, no pest will devour, no thief will break in and steal. He will bring flourishing and he will bring peace. Death will lead to glory. His plan is definite. Man. God has a plan and it affects your life. But you're not God's neighbor. You're living on his land. Are you living your life in the reality of what God is going to do? For some of us, it's just gonna be more freedom. We've grabbed a little freedom and peace that comes from Jesus Christ, but if we could comprehend this morning for just a moment that his dominion will have no end and peace will cover the earth and the glory of Jesus Christ will fill all things, we could be free from the worry and the struggle and the anxiety. It's not easy. But we could start to live that way. But if your fist is clenched against God, if your heels are dug in, resistance is futile. Be conquered by the love of Jesus Christ or you will be conquered by his wrath. Nathan gave me a book Friday and it pointed out what my preaching has always missed. Listen to these words. The gospel is not a push from the backside of our lives into goodness but a release from the inevitability of doing evil. The preached word makes possible the redemption into new life. Listen, by its announcement of what God has done and what God is doing. <laughs> what God has done and what God is doing. That is the hope of the gospel. He has done all things well for us. It is for us to walk through the gates and enter his rest and sit at his banquet table and have him speak our names to our faces. That's the gospel. Let's pray.
Father, your kindness to Peter, James, and John to let them glimpse just for a moment the glory that will one day be revealed. Lord, it was a blessing. Not at that moment, but in the wake and the full light of the resurrection. Lord Jesus, let us this morning bask in the glory and the light of the gospel that after sacrifice comes glory. We pray in your name. Amen.